0: So welcome, anybody who's arrived recently. Good to have you with us. Always good to take some moments during the day, as we can do now, and just appreciating how many wholesome causes and conditions have come together to allow us to be like this in this room, this beautiful place with this much time and support to be with our experience and, and to cultivate the path. I sort of hesitated on this uh, topic, which I haven't revealed yet. Because uh, so I'm the reason I'm saying this now is just to watch uh, all of us. Let's just watch our minds. So I thought uh, some of you might know I've been giving talks on the paramis at Comgum Meditation Center where I teach in Minneapolis, and uh, the next one is resolve or resoluteness, <laughs> and uh, there's something about the forest refuge and this particular set of circumstances where there's so much support and stillness just in the intentions behind the coming together of the place and the intentions behind us getting here. And then when somebody says, let's talk about resoluteness and determination and resolve, you know, it pushes, it triggers and evokes a lot of different patterns of conditioning, some quite wholesome, maybe some not so wholesome. But it's really good for us dharma practitioners to um, reflect. It's not so much to reflect on determination, but to reflect on what it is that the heart loves enough to evoke a kind of determination, resolve, and resoluteness. What is it that the heart loves enough, cares about enough, is devoted to enough? Because you know it is. There are a lot of things we have resolve around it. For some, it might be that you have a particular plant at home that has been in your home for a long time, and it's like, I'm all in for that plant. You know, it's like, we're like this. And uh, I'm attentive, not too much, not too little water. Where do you like to be in the house or the home? Near the window, away from the window. You give the cat the deadly stare if it goes close. I don't know about you, but every once in a while our cat wants to pee in the plants and then... Doesn't do the plant any good. So it shouldn't scare us. Resoluteness, determination, resolve, this wholehearted, all in commitment. I'm not sure where I came across this, but I remember reading somewhere in one of Pema Children's books that somehow she equated refuge. With not holding back, I thought, "Oh, that's a really creative way of uh, reflecting on refuge." Refuge is that way of being in our lives, where we're not holding back. And then it's just all along during the talk, just watching our mind, because a lot of, a lot of my patterns. I I don't think I'm all that unique. when we hear that kind of thing, it's like, we just imagine being all in means being tight. And it's just interesting that being devoted, caring with our whole heart somehow gets equated with being tight. <laughs> it Seems like there's something maybe I'm not seeing, we're not seeing, if that's the case. You know, I mean, one of these places we could check because it's such a, you know, cultural, yeah, just place of attention, falling in love, you know. And we can be very devoted to somebody we're falling in love with. But we know from experience, most of us, that getting tight about it doesn't help. So how can we be all in, really care about this path of awakening, not holding back, really determined moment by moment to be planting seeds that are wholesome, refraining from planting seeds that aren't helpful, and forgiving ourselves when we Catch yourselves planting seeds that aren't so wholesome. Aditana is the Pali, something like that at least. And Ajentsushito, he uh, says the word uh, means something like most complete establishment. Most complete establishment. And remember, if you haven't heard the the ten paramis, these are ways to cross the floods, the asawas, the flood, the tendency to crave, thinking that having something is gonna fix life or becoming somebody. or any kind of wrong view or ignorance. These are the floods that sweep us along in our lives most of the time, probably. And resoluteness is one of those qualities of the heart to cultivate. And obviously it requires some kind of discernment because it probably would be you know, if we had the, a different kind of structure here at the forced refuge, and you can definitely do this at home, to sit around with some Dharma friends and just each person takes some time to reflect on some of those places in your life where you have been all in, but without that wise discernment about whether this is the place to really be all in. and And that, you know, Just that whole cycle of enthusiasm, efforting, hoping, expectations, and then you know the eventual betrayal and disappointment, and maybe even despair and hopelessness for a while until the next thing kind of catches her eye, excites the heart. Oh, maybe this will be my salvation. This. Entertainment or this person or this spiritual practice or spiritual teacher, or whatever, and off we go. One of the, I think it was, might have been one of the first real Dharma books I read in the early 80s. I'm sure some of you have read it, Trumpa Rinpoche's book, uh, Spiritual Materialism. And near the end of that book, he, he's telling some stories about Milarepa. If you don't know, he's sort of one of the patron saints of Tibetan Buddhism, maybe the 10th or 11th century. And uh, evidently, I think as the, as he relays the story, one of the stories of Milarepa's life, his practice, uh, was humming along there, uh, living in a very secluded place. And uh, the way they describe it, you know, the these feminine expressions of wisdoms, the Dakini's arose and started chanting to him. Just expressions of his own practice, maturing. Generally seen as feminine sort of manifestations of the practice. And what did they chant to Milarepa? On the steep slope of fear and hope, the demons lie awaiting. (laughs) And uh, so we, we get those kind of warnings in life on the steep slope of fear and hope the demons lie awaiting like be careful when you have a good set you know that, it's kind of the standing joke at retreat centers there's nothing better to spoil a whole retreat than a good set <laughs> right cuz then we spend the rest of the day maybe longer sort of winding it back But the alternative of somehow leaving the heart that loves, the heart that cares, the heart that's capable of a really powerful devotion, devotional energy, leaving that out because it's dangerous, that doesn't make sense either. That doesn't really work. And probably some of us have been there where we just have been afraid to really care about our practice because we've been burnt maybe one too many times. And we just kind of, because we know that relaxation really helps (laughs) and is central, but relaxation is not the same as not caring. It's because we care, we are really attentive to when things are tight, when they don't need to be tight. Really attentive about the possibility of being relaxed, because we know it really helps. Being soft, being tender, being sensitive, not fixed on some plan, not fixed on some idea that, you know, even though life and dharma is lawful, doesn't mean it's linear or that you know we really understand all of the causes and conditions that are in play in any moment. We only get our little piece, which is the integrity, the quality of the heart that's showing up in the moment, basically that's that's our piece, how we're relating, how we're understanding. Are we willing to be close to the moment? Are we willing to feel what's moving now? So even though we can't have that kind of go-round sharing about all of our successes with resolve and all of our crashes with resolve and resoluteness, it's just like... uh, Just... Letting us all bathe in each other's forgiveness and tenderness. You know, it isn't easy being a human being with these hearts that get really inspired. And uh, it's kind of uh, energy we need, but it, it takes some skill to, kn- to know how to use that heart energy of inspiration. And enthusiasm, excitement. And that's just good to kind of see that as some of the work we're doing here. How to play and learn. You know, we often discover that to really learn, we need to make mistakes both in like holding back, Camping down, being afraid of being all in, and maybe making mistakes at the other side where we're overly identified with the goal, with the path, with progress. Somehow thinking that we see everything there is to see about cause and effect. I'm sure some of you have heard, because uh, Joseph has said it so many times, and I think it's in one of his books too, but just uh, just him, Joseph Goldstein, relaying a, a story from his years in India, practicing and some of the dry spells. And he, and he wrote, I remember telling myself at those times, Joseph, your job is just to sit and walk just surrender to the Dharma. I learned I could let go of expectations, let go of wanting. When I did, the practice got a lot smoother because then I stopped judging myself. Self-judgment and self-doubt are among the biggest obstacles on the path. And I remember, I don't know when it was, but Joseph for a while was quoting from that book, Life of Pi. Maybe some of you read it or saw the movie. And there's a wonderful quote that I'll just read. It's a short little passage. To choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. And this is this being on the fence, like avoiding using that energy of desire, wholesome desire, And one of those lists from the Dharma, from the Buddhist teachings, that we don't hear so much about, even though it's one of the wings of awakening. You know, I think it's 35. I don't forget how many lists there are involved in it, but you know, it's the five faculties and the four noble truths and. Seven Factors of Awakening, and they add up to about 35 when you put them all together. And there's a wonderful book, by the way, that I'm sure many of you have seen from Tanasaro Bhikkhu, The Wings to Awakening, where he covers and has a lot of the suttas uh, related to each of the Wings to Awakening. And the Itipada, that's one, one of the Wings, these four bases of success, four bases of power, four bases of fulfillment. And lo and behold, the first one is often translated as this desire. So these are the basis for all success in the path. <laughs> so it's relevant, <laughs> and uh, Chanda is one of those. Chanda is, is a, you know, is this sort of love. And desire. This is Ajahn Sushito talking about it. I think Joseph has a little short chapter in his book, Insight Meditation, on these four fulfillments, four bases of success. And uh, he uses the word zeal or strong desire. But Ajahn Sushito writes desire as an eagerness to offer, to commit, to apply oneself to meditation is called chanda. It is a psychological yes, a choice, not a pathology. In fact, you could summarize Dharma training as the transformation of tanha, craving, into chanda. In another place, um, I think it's in his book on the Paramis, he wrote, chanda is the willingness of the heart. I like that, just as a shorter, like, what is the heart willing to do? It's actually a good question on longer retreats where we're kind of finding our own way and gave up imposing a schedule on ourselves. And we realize that the path is alive here. It's real, it's impersonal, but it's very real. And to be asking, like, what is the heart? The heart that's aligned with the path what does it want to do? How does it want to practice? Because then we get from this place of making ourselves do stuff we don't want to do. <laughs> How does that work? does it doesn't work very well. I mean, some people can get away with it for a while, but it still isn't necessarily very helpful in the long term. And, you know, in general, life is this co-authoring. What does the heart really want to do? And we don't, you know, as we all know, we don't expect a clear answer. You know, it doesn't say what it wants to do. But it becomes part of the conversation, part of our living the day. It's that respect. I need my heart to be all in. How can my heart be all in? I don't know if people know Ajahn Jayasaro. He's uh, another one of the senior Western um, monks in the Thai forest tradition. He doesn't come to the West very often. He mostly lives in Thailand, but he's uh, originally from Britain. And he wrote on the same subject of Chanda, Western presentations of the Buddha's teachings, have often led to the understanding that suffering arises because of desire, and therefore you shouldn't desire anything. Whereas, in fact, the Buddha spoke of two kinds of desire. Desire that arises from ignorance and delusion, which is called tanha, craving, and desire that arises from wisdom and intelligence, which is called kusala chanda, or dhamma chanda, or most simply, chanda. Chanda doesn't mean this exclusively, but in this particular case, I'm using chanda to mean wise and intelligent desire and motivation. And the Buddha stressed that this is absolutely fundamental to any progress on the Eightfold Path. You know, when we... We might have to reform our idea of meditation, you know, because in Ajahn Sushito's passage that I read, to commit, to apply oneself to meditation is that one of the ways he defined chanda or practice? Because again, we have these habits of thinking of meditation uh, just in terms of sitting still with the mind focused aligned with stillness or something, which of course can be quite nice. But it's it's better to have a, a wider view of practice, just simply in a moment, any moment, creatively finding a way in that moment to align the mind with wholesomeness, like planting one seed in one moment, just aligning what, in what way can my mind, my heart, show up, relate, be, that is wholesome. And it might be just a willingness to refrain from being unwholesome. Oh, honey, I don't think so. I don't think that will be helpful. Let me just feel what it feels like to not act on this impulse and to be content. And I think that's what that passage that Joseph wrote is really about. When he was saying sitting, walking, you know, it wasn't just sitting and walking. It was moment by moment planting wholesome seeds, knowing that. I mean, it's it's really in terms of faith as people who really feel inspired by the Buddhist teachings. Primarily, we have faith in karma. This is a lawful, whatever this is, as vast, ungraspable as it is, we have faith that it matters how the mind is showing up right now, what the mind is doing, how the mind is relating. sometimes in these sort of things, because you know how it is we we sense, especially in the quiet of a place like the forced refuge, all of the patterns, conditioning of the heart and mind, just get louder, more obvious, you know, deep patterns of fear and deep patterns of feeling judged and judging and basically everything under the sun. And uh, it can feel, that that, uh, those patterns of conditioning can feel like a lot of momentum. And I use this for myself sometimes, and in my teaching, I use this image of these huge ships, you know, container ships, or up in Minnesota on Lake Superior, I don't know if you know, but Duluth, Minnesota is is a really huge port because uh, there's a lot of iron mining and other mineral mining in northern Minnesota. And it ships out through Lake, uh, through Duluth, through Lake Superior, then eventually out to the Atlantic Ocean and, and wherever it's gonna go. But um, these big ore ships, they're huge, really long, filled with iron ore. And uh, you, know, you can imagine turning something like that around But if you don't necessarily need a strong pressure, but if you just come at something at a different angle, like at a right angle, and you're just persistent, applying a steady force, even something that's huge and has a lot of momentum in this direction, it will turn around, completely turn around and go a different direction. And that's, I'm sure you recognize this. It's really why patience is seen, as the Buddha says, as the greatest austerity. It's like that, that willingness to persist. I don't know much, but I know I can keep planting wholesome seeds and refraining from planting unwholesome seeds. And it doesn't matter how many moments that I failed at that resolve, because I got this moment. I can forgive myself and begin again. I caught an interview with uh, Richie Davidson, some of you might know is a well-known neuroscientist at the University of Wisconsin in Madison and started this um, Center for Healthy Minds, I think it's called. And he's famous in part for having put a lot of meditators and monks in the MRI machine while they meditate and doing that kind of research. and. In this interview, he was talking about plasticity. And uh, I think somehow this is really related to our relationship with this uh, heart's desire and really accessing the energy of desire. It's that, uh, you know, the, the teaching then neuroscience on plasticity is that... Um, These patterns that seem so ingrained aren't as ingrained as we might imagine. In fact, what makes patterns so ingrained in part is thinking that they're ingrained. And one of the things I'm sure you notice when we come on a retreat the first few days and we see some of the old stuff, it's very easy for us to tell ourselves a story about whatever those old patterns are, maybe a lot of sleepiness or a lot of background of fear or a lot of restlessness, whatever it might be. And then, you know, the storytelling mind likes, it feels safer if it has a story, like, oh yeah, it's always been this way. It's always gonna be this way. This is just how the mind is. And we have this imagination of some kind of cognitive, mental, psychological edifice it's so solid. And, uh, of course, that's not what the Buddha says. It's not what current science says, you know, that things can change. But it, but one of the reasons this is a little scary for us, I think, is do we really want, like, if we can abandon, you know, uh Stop feeding, stop cultivating hellish states. And it's really possible for us to cultivate heavenly states and even more profound states of release and letting go. If that's really possible, then all of a sudden it it disturbs, uh, you know, We may not, it may not be pleasant, but we can be content with hopelessness because it's like somewhat solid for us. Like, uh, sure, I do this Buddhist stuff, but, you know, I'm not so sure It's, it's really working for me. We might have a lot of faith generally that it works, but specifically for me, you know, And we have this kind of unacknowledged, I would call it often talking about myself and others, arrogant certainty that somehow plasticity and change and the possibility of the deepest kind of transformation and letting go is that possible for me, for us? And how does it feel owning that responsibility to be all in? Because, you know, when there is something nice available, we're willing to work. I mean, even for silly things, the local pizza place, you know, has a 50% off coupon, but you've got to do this or that. You know, we're willing to do all kinds of things for Sully gains. Or if I, you know, if the Forest Refuge said, well, just to give the retreatants something interesting to work with, we've hidden 50 gold coins <laughs> on the grounds. You don't have to look, but you're certainly welcome to look for them. If you find anything, it's yours. Or whatever, or chocolate bars, or whatever it might be. We would put our mind to it. So it it really kind of, it's like, are we all in? It doesn't mean we have complete faith, you know, in a way the, the path is understanding over time what the path is. So we don't have like, you know, perfect confidence We have glimpses maybe, maybe some life-changing experiences. But for most of us, maybe all of us, we're in this kind of cultivation phase. But it's worthy, you know, to what else am I going to do with this life? What else has delivered as much benefit? makes as much sense. Good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end, as the Buddha says. What am I holding back for? And and just to start, you know, we have an imagination, so why not use it? Like, what would it look like if I were all in? Not holding back really willing, learning how, you know, not that we'll get it right immediately or even ever, but like learning how to take responsibility for using my life in the best possible way. For my own benefit, for the benefit of others, for the benefit of both, as the Buddha says. I wonder what that would look like. I wonder what that would feel like The Buddha says, and you might have heard this, I like this passage, but again, it, I, I notice there's some pushback in my mind. Abandon what is unskillful practitioners. It is possible to abandon what is unskillful. If it were not possible to abandon what is unskillful, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because it is possible to abandon what is unskillful, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. If this abandoning of what is unskillful were conducive to harm and pain, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because this abandoning of what is unskillful is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. And then cultivate what is skillful, practitioners. It is possible to cultivate what is skillful. If it were not possible to cultivate what is skillful, I would not say to you, cultivate what is skillful. But because it is possible to cultivate what is skillful, I say to you, cultivate what is skillful. If this cultivation of what is skillful were conducive to harm and pain, I would not say to you, cultivate what is skillful. But because this cultivation of what is skillful is conducive to benefit and pleasure, I say to you, cultivate what is skillful. So that's a a real invitation. And you know, we have a lot of pointing out instructions. I could bring up any number of teachings that many of you, most of you would be familiar with about, like, well, how might I go about that cultivation? One of the most straightforward and what the Buddha often used when teaching lay people, you know, it's sort of like, I imagine it this way if we're really at our wits' end, really frustrated with life, you know, and we called out to all the beneficent Dharma, you know, beings, wherever they might be, the Buddha itself, help me, (laughs) you know, I'm lost, help me. You know, help me find my way. And what would the beneficent forces of the Dharma speak back to us? Dana, sila, bhavana, right? These are, some of you know, the uh, the basis of all merit, of all, like, the real foundation of what leads to actual happiness, even on this relative level of an ordinary, self-centered human being that just wants some relief. And remember, that's often that view is what we're inhabiting, at least to some degree. And this, the Buddha says, works, generosity, moral sensitivity, and cultivating the heart. And um, it's pretty easy, I think, to like just here in the Forest Refuge to like in terms of, well, how do I plant seeds that are good? Well, what would stinginess look like now? What would generosity look like now? What would moral insensitivity look like now? What would moral sensitivity look like now? Bhavana, as you probably know, you know means cultivating the heart—the stability, sensitivity, clarity, and discernment of the heart. I like uh, Sido Tejaniya's instructions for Bhavana. Very straightforward. You have three jobs. Some of you know this who are students of Saida Tejaniya. And all of these three jobs are in the context of, it's okay to relax, (laughs) it's very good to relax. And the three jobs, use wise view, even if you have to borrow it from the Buddha, this is nature, not self, causes and conditions, internal, external, mental, physical, causes and conditions, coming and going lawfully, impersonally, due to all these causes and conditions. Bring in wise view, as best we can, awareness and continuity of awareness. And just being interested in wise view and awareness and what supports the continuity, what gets in the way, that's planting wholesome seeds. And that's the Bhavana piece. And even if we had no more instructions and no more background with meditation, and all we had was, okay, I'm here, I've got four weeks or whatever, two weeks, and I'm just planting seeds in the direction of generosity, contentment, submitting to the routine and the food and whatever, you know, that's all part of generosity being content with what I have, with the clothes I brought, or the weather that shows up, or whatever. It's always to be generous. Even how we shut doors and how we use physical objects can either be stingy or generous. Moral sensitivity, it's just like realizing just that tenderheartedness that realizes there's so much suffering here there everywhere why would I want to contribute to that in any way and how I am how I'm thinking how I'm showing up and it's obviously related to metta and compassion practice it's like just really valuing that moral sensitivity I don't know how but there's still a few mosquitoes flying around in my cabin the teacher cabin next to the office and you know i just i I think sometimes i should catch them there's like two of them in the space and put them outside and i thought oh, they're not really biting and uh you know not that it would be wrong to catch them and bring them outside but it's sort of like i guess they're feeding on the plants get enough nutriment there But in any case, but the the thing that's very alive in my heart is that moral sensitivity. Just sort of the quivering, you're a being that doesn't want to die. In some ways, I'm a being that doesn't want to die. You know, we have that mutuality. And, And that feels like practice, just recognizing that, something simple. And then the Bhavana piece, you know, just to remember a side of reminds us so much. It's like, we're not really cultivating Bhavana. We're not cultivating the heart when we're tight, when we're forcing, when we're identified with um, progress. You know, the simile that I really rely on a lot for just understanding the path, and it makes me, it really helps me relax. I'm I'm guessing some of you have heard this, but it's really three similes, actually, in this one sutta, where the Buddha, uh, in describing the path, says, if there's a mother hen who's laid some eggs, and this hen really wants the eggs to hatch, doesn't incubate the eggs, doesn't sit on them properly, it doesn't matter how much the mom wants the eggs to hatch. If the supporting causes for the hatching aren't there, the eggs aren't going to hatch. And if there's a mother hen who does sit on the eggs properly, but they're, they don't really, they're oblivious to whether the eggs hatch or not, their lack of, you know, wanting the eggs to hatch doesn't keep the eggs from hatching. So the point with this first simile is that, and Saito Tejiniya says this, this is what wisdom does for us. It it really discerns cause and effect. So if we have that deep love, that devotion, then it it's really meets up with wisdom because it really wants results. It, it hurts, you know, desire hurts, by the way. I was listening to Dharma talk by, um, Rob, Bubiya, I forget how he pronounces his name, um, who died recently. Uh, some of you know, a long time teacher at Gaia House. And, uh, and he was, he was talking about desire. This is one of the last talks he gave during a retreat just a few months before he died in, I think, 2020. And uh, I, say, I think True Desire is in his, the title of that Dharma talk, which is quite good. And uh, he talks about how desire burns. You know, really, really wanting to walk this path. It's like, uh, can't live with it and we can't live without it because <laughs> it's, it's intense. To, and and it, has to, it has to sort of meet up with wisdom so that the desire, the, the power of the desire meets up with wisdom and figures out what are the seeds that need to be planted that actually in the long run lead to the result that the heart really desires. So if the desire is for real release or to love unconditionally or whatever, however we feel and sense and get to know that desire, that deeper, deepest desire, it has to have a relationship with wisdom. However, it will always be imperfect. There are wisdom, our love, but it's what we have. So the second kind of related simile is the axe handle. So the first is the mother hen. It's all about understanding what are the causes that lead to transformation. What seeds need to be planted, what seeds don't. The axe handle simile basically says that if you've had an axe or a hammer you've used for a long time, you can't really tell that today the axe handle is more worn out than yesterday. But if you've been using that axe, that hammer, holding the handle for 10, 20, 30 years, you can definitely tell the difference between the axe handle when you bought it and the axe handle decades later of constant use. So the way I interpret the simile is patience, right? That if you're like joseph uses that example of planting carrot seeds when he was in first or second grade and then digging them up to see if they've sprouted it doesn't work right and just that contentment to have some degree of confidence that good seeds are being planted and there's a real happiness to be on the path no matter how long it is i know i'm cultivating what's wholesome I know I'm learning how to refrain from what is unwholesome. I feel the goodness of this path. And then the last simile in that that discourse at Sutta is um, of a ship that's been out in the ocean and then during the rainy time of year when the weather's bad, it gets pulled up. And the sails and the riggings start to rot in the rain and wind and sunshine. And this is a simile of the sort of exposure to the dharma wears out the defilements. We just have to stay in the vicinity of the dharma. Keep close, keep close to what, the teachings, the practices, the community, stay in the mix, stay in the sunshine, and what needs to rot away, what needs to fall away, will rot away, will wear out. And it feels that way sometimes, doesn't it? Some of you have done so many retreats. You know this, and like like that axe-handle simile, Yeah, maybe today is not much different than yesterday, but my retreats five years ago or ten years ago, you know, there's a lot more space in the heart and mind, a lot more resilience, more lightness, a more profound sense of humor about it all, lightness. And it really helps us along the way. So, yeah, each of us just finding our way to recognize that it's kind of wild the quality of the heart, you know, especially on retreat where things get amplified. It can get like, you know, how it is where you just feel so much heart energy when there's some sense, some recognition of the path is really unfolding. And how to learn to live with the intensity of that kind of heart energy, love, and devotion to the Dharma. And just, you know, it will be messy. (laughs) I mean, how many times, we would never do this, of course, but we've had Dharma friends come back from a retreat and they're just so hard to be around. (laughs) Because they have a lot of that heart energy, you know? They're just so in love with the Dharma. And it's like, oh my God! I remember, it was so painful. This is a long time ago, but just driving back from a nine-day retreat. It's probably in the early '90s, and uh, just three of us in a car, and just it, the energy was just so unbearable. Just with that kind of like on fire with the Dharma, <laughs> and I really felt like like I was going to die. There's just so much. I just wanted to sort of like on the interstate just sort of jump out of the car. (laughs) And that's how it is. You know, we feel that in moments on retreat and moments leaving retreat and moments coming into a retreat. And it's a wild ride of, of hope and despair, you know, that the demons lie awaiting. Because there will be with everything there's some identification until there isn't and there will be some identification with that heart energy but does it mean that not having heart energy is the way it means just getting more and more skillful how to use our whole life the whole heart the whole body all in so like being on the adventure with all of you Wishing you all well. And we'll end our time by doing the chant, um, sharing of the blessings, reflections on sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharmaseed.com